Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. This week I talk with British conductor, composer and clarinetist Colin Touchin, although that brief introduction doesn't really cover all the things he does. He's a guest conductor for a number of orchestras and ensembles. He continues to compose his own orchestral pieces. And since he first started coming to Hong Kong in 1996, he's helped to energize the local music scene. He loves Hong Kong and is now based here permanently. Colin presents a Saturday morning show called In Touch With Music on RTHK's Radio 4, which is three hours of Colin sharing with you his music finds from medieval to contemporary, musical history and different musical forms. And you can listen with the early birds from 7am to 10am or catch it later on the online archive. That's In Touch With Music with Colin Touchin. at the University of Warwick. I was the director of music there from about 1990 or so. And I spent about 13 years there. They decided that they would like to make more impact in the East, and so they sent a few people from the university over to Hong Kong to experiment with going into schools, talking to sixth formers, talking to the teachers, explaining what we did at the university. So we were putting a, a face and people, personalities, behind the image of the university. So against the other universities that were also trying to get Eastern students to go to the UK, Warwick actually made the decision to send people and I suppose for the money they paid for our airfare and our hotels it would be the same cost if they put adverts in the newspapers but it was much more effective to have people so I was here for music we also had a mathematician and somebody from the English department and they, sure enough the entries to Warwick increased enormously now, you are a conductor, but you're also a musician. What instruments do you play? Well, I play the clarinet and the recorder as a more or less professional player. Um, I also play the piano as a useful tool. I never was great on the piano, but it is useful, obviously, to be able to play scores and to find out what other people are talking about in music. I enjoy conducting very much indeed, the opportunity of sharing music with a lot of people and guiding them to a, a sort of combined experience of what the music is about. I love composing, and I do a lot of that. I've been adjudicating, actually, since I was in my early 20s, and I love the opportunity of adjudicating young musicians particularly who are playing sometimes for the first time in a festival opportunities for them to experience what it's like to play to people what it's like to develop their styles of classical baroque and romantic music and to bring together some threads of music teaching which I can do in a public forum as an adjudicator so it's a bit like a very practical way of teaching even though it's called adjudicating and that's rather different from examining which I can't really do I mean I have tried it briefly but that's a very much more objective measure and it doesn't really appeal to me so much. Now you recently got back onto the clarinet that's right. Well, when I was very young, the first thing I played would be the piano in our house. My father had a piano. And then I 
at my eighth birthday party, one of my guests brought me a plastic descant recorder, which was, funnily enough, made in Hong Kong. And <laughs> I tried playing this, and I sat in a corner playing this recorder during my party, being very antisocial, but clearly I was drawn to the recorder. Um, since then, I moved on to better instruments and found also that I could play the clarinet. For some reason, I came home from primary school one day and said to my parents, I'm going to play the clarinet. Nobody knows why. I think we've been to a Halle <laughs> Orchestra concert, and I was just drawn to the clarinet. So, yes, for my 10th birthday, they bought me a clarinet, and luckily at the next school I went to, the grammar school, um, the clarinet teacher happened to be in the Halle Orchestra. So I actually got lessons from a very good player right at the beginning. I was very lucky. Now, this is quite a hard instrument to play, I think. I think every instrument's hard to play well. Uh, I think you can get noises out of most instruments fairly easily. Some of them are very unpleasant noises at the beginning, uh, but some are quite pleasant even at the start. So I think that the subtlety of playing any wind instrument is, of course, how you use your breath to articulate the music, how you phrase, how do you, if you like, sing through the instrument. Of course, there are aspects of fingering and tonguing and learning how to make all the notes in time, but the essential thing with any wind instrument is that it should be a bit of your soul expressed through the air you push through the tube. And the problem with a lot of wind playing is that very often we are taught to make a beautiful sound all the time. And so you start to make the beautiful sound on a long note and the same beautiful sound on your scales and the same beautiful sound all the way up from bottom to top. So actually it doesn't have a lot of character if we're not careful. It becomes simply a beautiful sound. And that to me is not enough. Uh, it doesn't express enough of all the things that music can do. We need something rough. We need something with edges. We need some spike and some sparkle. And you don't get that if it's always a bland, beautiful sound, even if it is a very nice, beautiful sound. So I think as teachers and as players and even as composers inspiring others, we have to look for sounds that are not straightforward and simple. So you came here with Warwick University, mm -hmm. and then did you sort of, was that your first time to Hong Kong? That's right, it was in 96, it was about the year before the handover, I guess, and I didn't know that was going to happen, I just came here because the university sent me, but I had a whale of a time, I was just here for a week, I loved Hong Kong immediately, I just loved the, the, the speed and the pace of life. The people I met here who were involved in music, they all said, well, you must come and live here, and I said, no, no, I'm quite happy with my life in the UK, I'm doing plenty of stuff over there, and each time I came to Hong Kong, and in fact I came back every year, from that year on, sometimes not through the university, just through the contacts I made. And sometimes I came back six times in a year, and I just enjoyed being here, and people kept inviting me back, so I would keep coming. And they kept saying, please, you must come and live here. So eventually, about four years ago, we actually made that decision to come and live here. Now tell me about, obviously coming out of, of Britain, you've also, through your partner, got experience of Warsaw. How is, uh, for you, how is the music scene in Hong Kong? Hong Kong's music has developed a lot in the last 20 years. When I first came out here and adjudicated for some of the music festivals, some of the playing and some of the singing was not very advanced. I mean, it was doing well in the sense that people were engaged in this art of making music together, but the standards of singing and playing weren't necessarily very well tuned or very timely, and there was not a lot of experimentation in terms of interpretation. Things were often too fast and often not phrased very well. That has all changed. The last 20 years has seen a massive development You've got some really inspired music teachers, and in schools you've got some wonderful conductors of choirs, bands and orchestras, and of course the Hong Kong Phil, the Sinfonietta and the City Chamber Orchestra have all developed enormously as fabulous orchestral forces. And you've got the choirs. All the choirs have done so well. You've got fantastic choral resources here now in Hong Kong. The development has been really fast and really good, and it's based on solid hard work by the conductors and the teachers, and I think it's creating a really exciting musical life for 
people, whether they are already local or if they're visitors like myself. Yeah, so um, aside from the, the orchestras or anybody else who comes in to visit Hong Kong, would you say we've got a very thriving music cultural scene here? I would. I mean, one of the things that you can point to is the difficulty of booking a concert hall. <laughs> it's almost impossible to get a concert hall when you'd like it. I mean, it is a crazy booking system, I have to say. But that apart, the fact is that there are so many groups wanting to perform. They are getting ready for performances, and they are performing often to a very high level. And these can be school concerts, they can be reunion concerts, professional, amateur, youth, older people, community choirs and bands. I mean, there's a huge range of music going on, and that's all in the Western forms. Of course, you've got all the traditional Chinese forms as well. And jazz is developing, even though we've lost one or two venues that is a bit of a shame. But those venues that are keeping going with the jazz obviously are doing fabulous work. And there's a great thirst and hunger amongst the local people to go to support this music. The audiences, I think, are very keen to be there. I think it's, like any country, it's still a small percentage of all the population who actually bother to go to concerts. But those who go are very enthusiastic and they do know their work. I mean, the people who support the Hong Kong Phil really know their repertoire. THK Radio 4, is that uh, both people coming in and also musicians that you interview from Hong Kong? Well, the people that I get to meet um, who come to RTHK often have come a long way. I mean, say, America, Britain, Europe, and so on. Um, and they've come a long way, not just in terms of the miles they've travelled, but also in the distance their musical career has taken them. And they come to Hong Kong, I think, to share what they've learned. And I think they are very keen to make that sharing. Um, they're keen to share it in two ways. One is, obviously, to give what they already have and what they can do, which, because they're Western or European, is uniquely... Uh, a part of their heritage, which is not yet part of the Hong Kong heritage. But equally, they're wanting to learn what is happening here in Hong Kong. And every one that I've spoken to has been really impressed with what they found here, both the standard and the enthusiasm for music making, and also the sense of inquiry, the, the desire to learn and desire to grow in music by meeting people from other countries and sharing this music together. Tell me what you do for Radio 4. Okay, well, I do a programme every Saturday morning, which is uh, three hours of a section on chamber music, a section of choral music, and a section of wind band music. I actually select CD tracks from my own collection, and then I link them together and make a little uh, announcement about the performers, the composer, a bit of background and so on, and just join it together so that the programme runs um, each morning so that we actually have, I think, a fair bit of variety of things that I am interested in, which I hope other people at home will be interested in as well. That's one of the programmes I do. I also also do some voiceovers for programs like Music of Friends and Live on Four, the concerts, and I was starting to do some outside broadcasts as well, which is very exciting. So I'm very keen to be part of this very big family of people who are involved in music and music production. But they, again, the commitment here within the station seems to be tremendous to share, again, what is going on in the city with the people of the city, and their desire is to do high-quality programs, get them technically well-prepared and accurate as often as we can 
can and emulating other great radio programs around the world. So when you uh, choose your from your, I mean, so this is a, a lot of these, as you say, are coming from your collection. That's right. So yeah. you digitised or you're on CD? It's all CDs. Yeah. So today, for example, I'm recording later on. I've got a bag full of CDs, <laughs> and I spend a few hours going through finding tracks. And each week I do the same, um, and I make sure that the programmes that I've got uh, are made of, I hope, a balance of mostly music that uh, is going to be tuneful enough for people who've never heard it before yeah. to like it, but also sometimes things that are strange and different, things that people may not have had the chance to hear, may not have wanted to hear, but in the context of music where they do actually hear something that they like and they immediately like, then this something strange may not be too off-putting. And I hope that they will listen to the whole programme and listen to new things with an open ear for the fact that this is chamber music or choral music where composers are trying things out and experimenting with the forces they have. I think that's great because it's a form of education but I think what I enjoy, I know I'm biased because I'm part of RTHK but what I enjoy is there's a lack of snobbery to RTHK's Radio 4. I, I do feel that, you know, even if you're a layman listener, which I am a lot of the time, I'm not, um, I'm not lost. Mm. Um, so much of, I think sometimes people's perception of classical music can be that it's all frightfully highbrow. That's very true. I think that we're, we're taught, if you like, that there's high art, and therefore, logically, there must be low art. <laughs> and, of course, there's this big difference between popular music and classical music. And, of course, classical, strictly speaking, only applies to about 40 years of the history of music, and that period of the classics. Otherwise, it's Baroque music or Romantic music, and classical music shouldn't actually be all the other music apart from popular. You know, we misuse the word, but it gives it the wrong image to a oh, lot of I people. I didn't know that. So what yeah. is classical music, Well, then? the classical period is essentially about 1770 to 1810, 1820. Before that, you have the Brock period. Uh, pre-classical period, uh, Rococo and Galon styles, and then you go through the classical period, which obviously included Mozart and Haydn and so on at their heyday. And as they turn into the uh, 1800s, of course, you're beginning to find the, the image of Romanticism is coming through, and certainly by the time you get to Beethoven, late Beethoven, Schubert, uh, Berlioz, indeed, obviously in the 1820s, 1830s, we're into Romanticisms. Classical music has gone. So the classics, or the classical period, is a very strict period. And amongst musicians, we like to think that classical music is therefore just that period of about 40 years around the turn of the century. Otherwise it's Baroque or it's Romantic or it's Renaissance, Medieval. Um, there is a label for it if you like and the label classical shouldn't be there. I'm very amused that many years ago the Times in their Sunday magazine decided to put out all the different arts things. So you had cinema and you had theatre. You also had rock and you had music and you had Classical. <laughs> classical was made by the times into a little ghetto, uh, not even called music, not even called rock or pop or anything. It was called classical, and it was made, therefore, to be different from music. And that sort of shows you a little bit about the way people treat classical music, as if it is in some way almost offensive. <laughs> And I do recall, <laughs> even in Coventry, where I used to live, we had trouble with some sort of youngsters, shall we say, in the evenings making noise in the city. So what the council did was they put loudspeakers above the squares where the youngsters congregated. And about 7 o'clock in the evening, they played Beethoven, and suddenly the youngsters disappeared because classical music, in the broadest sense, was being used as an offensive weapon to make sure people disappeared. Oh, that's <laughs> such a shame. I, I do, that's not fair on it's Beethoven, not at all, is no, it? No, but it, it worked, unfortunately, to get rid of the students at that age of that type because 
because they clearly didn't appreciate that music in their space. Their space was where they wanted to listen to their own music, and they couldn't stand this, as it were, older authority music coming out from elsewhere. Now, I mean, what I find also interesting about certain types of classical music, Beethoven included, is just how incredible it is when you are transported mm. by, by a piece of music. What would you say, and I know you've got a vast collection, mm. but if you want to sort of clap a pair of earphones on and have that experience, what would you choose? Uh, depends very much on the time of day and the mood and the feeling and so on. Um, a good bit of Bruckner's fourth or seventh would do quite nicely. A little bit of uh, Barbara Adagio, or maybe not just the version for strings, but the choral version, the Onions Day as well. It's actually the adagio for strings. Originally, that was a string quartet, and it was, he created a full string orchestra version, which became very popular, of course, as a, a sort of a sad piece that people would often use after the Second World War. But also, he put words to it, the Anya's Day, and made it into a choral piece. So you hear the same music as he is played by strings, but sung. And, of course, the double expression of human voices with this particularly profound piece of music make it very telling and very inspiring. If I'm wanting something that might uplift me, I might sort of look for a bit of jazz or um, some music, say, from Africa, some native drumming or something. There's a wide variety of stuff. If I want to be genuinely excited about music, I'm afraid I always go back to Brahms because, to me, he's the greatest composer. Uh, the combination of expression and the skill of composing notes that fit together, that make patterns out of, from three or four notes to create a whole symphony, I don't think there's anybody who did it better. Brahms' second symphony, for example, of the four symphonies, is one that begins with just those three notes, um, the D, C sharp, D, and from that moment you realise that he's going to use just those notes to invent a whole movement of inversions and extensions of those three notes, and the first movement of that symphony has always struck me as being one of the finest examples of development. When you were saying that sometimes on a Saturday morning you will have a whole variety of music, what were the three? There was choral... The chamber music is the first hour, choral is the second hour, and the wind band is the third hour. Now, within the wind band, I sometimes include a little bit of brass band as well, because that's obviously a very big repertoire in the UK particularly, now growing certainly in Europe and in Australia. Uh, also a little bit in America, they're beginning to get the idea of the brass band, and we have started a brass band here in Hong Kong as well, uh, which we call the British Brass Company, the BBC of Hong Kong. But also the chamber music is a, something very close to my heart. When I was teaching in Manchester, I worked with a cellist and a pianist, and I play the clarinet, so we would often do trio concerts. And I realised that the difficulty we had as a group was to match the different playing techniques, in my case wind instrument, with the bowing of the string instrument and the touch of the keyboard, to make the same musical result, but from very different technical skills. And that was a wonderful challenge that we addressed very openly amongst ourselves, and we kept talking about how do we make this chord, this note, work when we're playing in such different ways. 
I realized then that chamber music is the one field of music where you can concentrate on a small number of instrumental resources and you can concentrate on putting together that sound to make a whole that is very satisfying. With a symphony orchestra, you've got so many instruments, you can never really get to that same detail, even though the great orchestras do play to a very high level. But the chamber music, where you're individually responsible for your sound and you haven't got a conductor, you have to do it by listening and by reacting to your friends, that's the highest form of making music, I think. Oh, how interesting. Now, you were saying that with, with these three forms of music that you have on your Saturday morning, that you will provide uh, what you hope is, is uh, for people that they'll enjoy the listening, and then you'll stretch them a little bit mm. by providing what you said would be something strange. What comes under that? Okay. Well, those, <laughs> some of the music is actually for different combinations. So, yes, chamber music, we expect string quartet, uh, piano trio, violin, cello, piano, or wind quintet, brass quintet. But I also sometimes have pieces which use odd combinations, for example, recorder and piano accordion, or uh, glockenspiel and piano, things that you wouldn't normally expect. Or even I've got something with tuba and guitar. So there are pieces which are combinations of sounds that you need to hear to realise what they can actually do to you. Um, and as I say, some are more successful than others, but experiments are there to be had. In terms of choral music, people are writing chords, clusters, where people are singing notes very close to each other, so you get a very dense texture. Things that wouldn't have existed, obviously, in the classical and romantic period, where harmony is very much more laid out and there's space between the notes. But we're beginning to get to a point when both singers can sing close harmonies without losing their pitch, as well as listeners can appreciate the dense clusters that are, are created that don't have, if you like, a harmonic language or explanation. They are just experiences in sound. So these are new ways in which people are expressing the concept of composition. Tell me about your composing. I started composing when I think I would be about 11 or 12, and at home we were writing, we, we, our pl family played recorders, I played the recorder from eight, um, my brother and father both took it up as well, so we all played recorders, every Sunday evening we play recorder trios, and I started writing music for us to play, so there'd be variations on folk tunes, they weren't very good at all, um, <laughs> but I started doing that, and I did write also some more original pieces when I got to about 13 or 14, I won a couple of competitions when I was about 16, writing a piece for string or orchestra and piece for uh, recorders and strings on another festival. So I was quite encouraged by those. And then I went to university, and at university I, I didn't have a, a teacher of composition, but obviously I had opportunities for compositions to be played. So I did a chamber symphony of about 20 minutes. I did a wind quintet, which won the first Oxford Music Festival composition class and the Lennox Barclay Trophy. And I suppose that pushed me and said, yeah, it's worth doing, keep doing it. And so I've been writing ever since and written music for theatre, written symphonies, written choral pieces, orchestral, wind band, brass band, chamber music, music for schools, you know, I just write because I like writing.
how do you set about it? Do you say, right, okay, for a theatre piece, it's, it's, it's about this? And I mean, I, I'm just fascinated mm. by just the, the mental process. Well, the, the process of composing a brand new piece where you have the instrumentation already worked out for you, like this is for a symphony orchestra and this orchestra has a cor anglais, it has four French horns but it doesn't have three trombones. You know, you, you find out the scoring and then you lay out the score paper and you simply put a note down. It doesn't really matter where that note is, you start off with a note. That note will tell you what next note might come. Uh, it might be, by contrast, a very high or low note or it may be an extension of the first note and you just keep growing the piece, if you like. Um, sometimes the ideas seem to grow themselves a bit like sort of a garden, you know, you plant seeds and something comes up, wow, I didn't know that would happen. And sometimes you have to take hold of it and prune it because it goes too wild. <laughs> um, and it is very much that sort of experience, that it is a growing process. Um, other times, yes, if it's theatre music, of course the play has a character and there are individuals and the people need to be represented with themes. Or the director says, I've got 17 seconds for this stage change. You've got to get these people off and these people on. It goes from tragedy to comedy. You've got 17 seconds is that okay? And so, yes, you just set to and you make the music change. And, of course, we've all seen cinema, cinema music now, or films with music, where we appreciate what the composers are doing to change the mood, and they capture the character of the people on stage, and you can see their eyes... Exp uh, change expression and the music changes with those eyes and you realize this is brilliant composition of the composer and the film producer making it work together on the theater stage it's quite different because of course the audience cannot usually see the eye changes in quite the same way acting on stage is different from acting on film as michael kane brilliantly showed in some master classes a few years ago and the composer of music for film has to react to some different images from composing for theater um i haven't done that now for a little while because the opportunity hasn't been there. So very often what I've written for theatre more recently has been atmospheric music. Somebody says this story is about, can you give me introduction music or this is the end of act one, what would you do then and so on um, rather than specific scene changes and so on. Now you recently got the clarinet out in England. Mm. Yeah, I decided that uh, this time in my life, in the sort of mid-60s, it's time to check whether or not I can still play the clarinet properly. Um, so I made myself play. I got myself back into practice and joined together with some friends down in Cornwall. One of my students from Warwick University has set up a new little chamber music festival down in a village in Cornwall where she now lives. And she'd invited me last year to be the patron of this festival, so I was very happy to do that. I couldn't get over for the festival last year, but I promised this year that I would go and I would invite friends and would go and play and do one of the concerts and she was very happy that we could be part of the program and so we gave uh, these quartets for clarinet violin viola and cello and they are full of lovely romantic and classical tunes but also fiddly things that made my fingers have to get back into practice and get the tongue going again and the hardest problem when you've been out of playing for so long and really it's about 20 years since i did any serious playing um, is actually the lip and getting the embouchure right and uh, so i had to build up sort of literally as you start five minutes a day ten minutes a day just to strengthen the lip again because I knew that if I didn't do that I'd sort of wear it out too quickly and it would be too sore to carry on. As it happened I just managed to get through to the end of the concert which after the rehearsal on the afternoon as well meant that I played as much in that day as I pretty well had for the week before. When I was in full form of course I was playing sort of five or six hours a day and there was no problem but now coming back to it after such a long break clearly I have to give myself time to get ready but I do want to keep playing. I enjoy playing so much but I don't worry now because 
because I haven't practiced, I don't expect myself to play very well. <laughs> the fact I can play quite well is actually quite a nice relief. And I just enjoy it. I don't put the pressure on myself of having to get it all right because I know I really shouldn't, you know, with the background I've described. Colin Touch in there, who you can listen to on his Saturday morning show, In Touch With Music, or catch it later on the archive. I also recently discovered that Colin Touchin, as well as being a clarinetist, also loves to cycle, and his cycling quests have included cycling right up Britain from Land's End to John O'Groats. That's a trip of more than 1,400 kilometres, which he's done twice. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>